Chapter 1. Christopher Quarles, College Professor and Master Detective. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Posante. Christopher Quarles, College Professor and Master Detective by Percy James Brebner. The Affair of the Ivory Boxes. There was a substantial aspect about Blenheim Square, not of that monotonous type which characterizes so many London squares, but a certain grace and consciousness of well-being. The houses, though maintaining some uniformity, possessed individuality, and in the season were gay with window boxes and flowers. The garden in the center was not too stereotyped in its arrangement, and plenty of sunlight found its way into it. The inhabitants were people of ample means, and the address was undoubtedly a good one. There was no slum in close proximity, that seamy background which so constantly lies behind a fair exterior of life. It was seldom that any but respectable people were seen in the square, for hawkers and itinerant musicians were forbidden. And, beyond a wedding or funeral at intervals, nothing exciting ever seemed to happen there. It looked particularly attractive when I entered it one spring morning early and made my way to number 12. As I approached the house and noted that the square was still asleep, an old gentleman, clad in a long and rather rusty overcoat, shuffled toward me from the opposite direction. He wore round goggles behind which his eyes looked unusually large, and a wide-awake hat was drawn over his silver locks. He stopped in front of me and, without a word, brought his hand from his pocket and gave me a card. Christopher Quarles, I said, reading from the bit of pasteboard. My name, what is yours? Murray Wigan, I answered, and the next instant was wondering why I had told him. Ah, I do not fancy we have met before, Detective Wigan. Perhaps we may help each other. You knew Mr. Radcliffe, I asked? No. But I have heard of him. I'm afraid that he laid two fingers of a lean hand on my arm. You had better. It will be wise. A sharp retort came to my tongue, but remained unspoken. I could hardly explain why, because in an ordinary way his manner would have only increased my resentment and obstinacy. I was young, just over thirty, but success had brought me some fame and unlimited self-confidence. I was an enthusiast, and had been spoken of as a born detective, but the line of life I had chosen had sadly disappointed my father. He had given me an excellent education, and had looked forward to his son making a name for himself, but certainly not as a mere policeman, which was his way of putting it. Indeed, family relations were strained even at this time, a fact which may have accounted for that hardness of character which people, even my friends, seemed to find in me. My nature and my pride in my profession were therefore assailed by the old man's manner, yet the sharp answer remained unspoken. You will find that I am known to your people, he added, while I hesitated. I did not believe him for a moment, but there was something so compelling in the steady gaze from the large eyes behind the goggles that I grudgingly allowed him to enter the house with me. 
Early that morning, before the first milk cart had rattled through Blenheim Square, Constable Plowman had been called to number 12 by the cook housekeeper, who had found her master, Mr. Ratcliffe, dead in his study. Plowman had at once sent for a doctor and communicated with Scotland Yard. The doctor had arrived before me, but nothing had been moved by the constable, and the housekeeper declared that the room was exactly as she had found it. The study was at the back of the house, a small room lined with books. In the center was a writing table, an electric lamp on it was still burning, and, leaning back in his chair, his eyes fixed on vacancy, sat Mr. Ratcliffe. The doctor said he had been dead some hours. On the blotting pad immediately in front of him was a large blue stone, a sapphire, and arranged in a rough semicircle around the pad were the various boxes of one of those Chinese curiosities in which the box is contained within a box until the last is quite small. They were of thin ivory, the largest being some three inches square, the smallest not an inch, and they were arranged in order of size. There was no confusion in the room, no sign of violence on the dead man. Curtains were drawn across the window, which was open a little at the top. At first my attention was somewhat divided. The old man interested me as well as the case. He looked closely into the face of the dead man, then glanced at the curtained window and nodded his head in a sagacious way, as if he had already fathomed the mystery. He looked at the sapphire and at the semicircle of boxes, but he did not attempt to touch anything, nor did he say a word. Well, it is easy enough to look wise. It is when a man opens his mouth that the test begins. I came to the conclusion that he was a venerable fraud, and that I had been a fool to let him come in. I dismissed him from my mind and commenced my own investigations. On the windowsill there were marks, which made it practically certain that someone had entered the room that way but neither then nor later could I discover any footprints in the small garden, which was some eight feet below the window. The housekeeper, who had been with Mr. Ratcliffe a dozen years, explained that on coming down in the morning she had gone into the study to draw the curtains as usual. The room was exactly as we saw it. Her master spent most of his time in the study when he was at home, and seemed to enjoy his own company. He went little into society, but a friend sometimes dined with him. Indeed, his nephew, Captain Ratcliffe, had dined with him last night. She had gone to bed before the captain left, and did not hear him go. She would not admit that her master was peculiar or eccentric in any way, but said he had seemed worried and rather depressed lately. The slightest noise in the house disturbed him, and she fancied he had gotten into the habit of listening for noises, for once or twice she had come upon him in a listening attitude. She knew nothing about the sapphire, and had never seen the ivory boxes before. The old man never asked a question. I do not think he said a single word until we were leaving the house, and then he remarked in a casual manner, A curious case, Detective Wigan. Some curious points in it, I said. I was glad when the old fellow had shuffled off. He was a disturbing influence. His eyes behind those goggles seemed to have a paralyzing effect upon me. I could not think clearly. Certainly there were many curious points in the case, and my inquiries quickly added to the number. Mr. Radcliffe had traveled extensively, was a linguist, and a far richer man than his neighbors had supposed. 
collecting precious stones had been his hobby, and in the case deposited with his bankers there were many valuable and some unique gems. Probably he had others with him in the house, but none were found except the sapphire lying on the blotting pad. Robbers might have taken them, the marks on the windowsill were suggestive, but I was doubtful on this point. Even if robbers had entered the room, how was Mr. Ratcliffe's death to be accounted for? There was no mark upon the body. There was no trace of poison. The doctors declared he was in perfectly healthy condition. There was no apparent reason for his death. Besides, if he had been robbed of his jewels, why should the sapphire have been left? It was only natural, perhaps, that suspicion should fall upon the dead man's nephew. Might he not have left the house by the window, it was asked? I had put the same question to myself. Captain Ratcliffe's behavior, however, was not that of a guilty man, although there were certain things which told against him. He answered questions frankly and without hesitation. He was in a line regiment and was somewhat heavily in debt. It was close upon midnight when he left his uncle, he said, and they had not gone into the study at all. They had sat smoking and talking in the dining room, and just before he left, they had both had a little whiskey. The empty glasses and the cigar ends in the dining room went to confirm this statement. He knew about his uncle's hobby for stones, was surprised to find that he was such a rich man, and declared that he had no idea he was his heir. Mr. Radcliffe had never helped him in any way. In fact, that very night, he had refused, not unkindly, but quite frankly, to lend him a sum of money he had asked for. There had been no quarrel, and they parted excellent friends. I am convinced that a large section of the public wondered why Captain Radcliffe was not arrested, and possibly some detectives would have considered there was sufficient evidence against him to take this course. I did not, although I had him watched. The fact was that Christopher Quarles lurked at the back of my mind. I found that he had spoken the truth when he said that he was known at Scotland Yard. He was a professor of philosophy, and some two years ago he had made what seemed a perfectly preposterous suggestion in a case which had puzzled the police, with the result that he had been instrumental in saving an innocent man from the gallows. A chance success was the comment of the authorities. My own idea was that he must have had knowledge which he ought not to possess. Now it might prove useful to cultivate the acquaintance of this mysterious professor, so I called upon him one morning in his house at West Street, Chelsea, as keen upon a difficult trail as I had ever been in my life. The servant said the professor was at home and requested me to follow her. Through open doors I had a glimpse of taste and luxury. Softly carpeted rooms, old furniture, good pictures. And then the servant opened a door at the extreme end of the hall and announced me. Astonishment riveted me to the threshold for the moment, except for a cheap writing table in the window, a big armchair by the fireplace, and two or three common chairs against the wall. This room was empty. There was no carpet on the floor, not a picture on the whitewashed walls. The windows had a blind, but no curtains. There were no books, and the appointments of the writing table were of the simplest kind possible. Ah, uh, I've been expecting you, said Quarles, crossing from the window to welcome me. A skull cap covered his silver locks, but he wore no glasses, 
and today there were few signs of age or deterioration of physical or mental force about him. His shuffling gait when he had met me in Blenheim Square that morning had evidently been assumed, and he probably had worn glasses to conceal some of the expressions of his face. "'You have been expecting me?' I said. Two days ago I gave the servant instructions to bring you in whenever you came. Zena, my dear, this is Detective Wigan, my granddaughter, who often assists me in my work. I bowed to the girl who had risen from the chair at the writing table, and for a moment forgot the professor, and indeed everything else in the world. Since no woman had ever succeeded in touching any sympathetic chord in me, it may be assumed she was remarkable. In that bare room she looked altogether out of place, and yet her presence transformed it into a desirable spot. You were full of surprises, Professor, I said, with a keen desire to make myself agreeable. I enter your house and have a glimpse of luxury through open doors, yet I find you in an empty room. You tell me I'm expected when until a few hours ago I had not determined to call upon you, and now you further mystify me by saying this lady is your helper. Philosophy is mysterious, he answered, and I am interested in all the ramifications of my profession. To understand one science perfectly means having a considerable knowledge of all other sciences. My grandfather exaggerates my usefulness, said the girl. I do not, he returned. Your questions have constantly shown me the right road to travel, and to have the right road pointed out is half the battle. Sit down, Mr. Wigan, in the armchair. No, I prefer sitting here myself. Zena and I were talking of Blenheim Square when you came in. A coincidence, perhaps, but it may be something more. In these days we are loath to admit there are things we do not understand. This case puzzles you? The detective in me was coming slowly uppermost again, and I remembered the line I had decided to take with this curious old gentleman. It does. From first to last I am puzzled. To begin with, how came you to hear of the tragedy that you were able to be upon the scene so promptly? Are you here as a spy or to ask for help? Come, a plain answer, said Quarles hotly, as though he were resenting an insult. Dear, said the girl soothingly. Zena considers you honest, said the old man, suddenly calm again. My helper, as I told you, and not always of my opinion. Let that pass. You are a young man with much to learn. I am not a detective, but a philosopher, and sometimes an investigator of human motives. If a mystery interests me, I endeavor to solve it for my own satisfaction. But there it ends. I never give my opinion unless it is asked for, nor should I interfere except to prevent a miscarriage of justice. If this is clear to you, you may proceed and tell me what you have done, how far you have gone in the unraveling of this case. If you are not satisfied, I have nothing more to say to you except good morning. For a moment I hesitated, then shortly I told him what I had done, and he listened attentively. I have always worked alone, I went on. Not without success, as you may know. In this case, I am beaten so far. And I come to you. Why? For two reasons. First, you will forgive my mentioning it again. Your prompt arrival puzzled me. Secondly, I believe in Captain Radcliffe, and am anxious to relieve him of the suspicion which undoubtedly rests upon him. The old man rubbed his head through the skull cap. You would like to find some reason to be suspicious of me? Mr. Winger does not mean that, dear, said Zena. The professor shook his head doubtfully. Crime as crime does not interest me. 
It is only when I am impelled to study a case, against my will sometimes, that I become keen, and, whenever this happens, the solution of the mystery is likely to be unusual. My methods are not those of a detective. You argue from facts. I am more inclined to form a theory, and then look for facts to fit it. Not a scientific way, you may say, but a great many scientists do it, although they would strenuously deny the fact. I could show you how the facts support my theory, but I cannot always produce the actual proof. In many cases, I should be a hindrance rather than a help to you. It is courteous of you to say so, I returned, wishing to be pleasant. It is quite true, not a compliment, said the girl. First, the dead man, Quarles went on. Quite a healthy man was the medical opinion, but his eyes. Did you particularly notice his eyes? You look into the brain through the eyes, see into it with great penetration, if you have accustomed yourself to such scrutiny as I have done. Mr. Radcliffe had not been dead long enough for his eyes to lose that last impression received from the brain. They were still looking at something, as it were, and they still had terror in them. Now he was a traveler, one who must have faced danger scores of times. It would take something very unusual to frighten him. I acquiesced with a nod. We may take it, I think, that such a man would not be terrified by burglars. I admitted this assumption. He was looking at the curtains which were drawn across the window. That is a point to remember, said the professor, marking off this fact by holding up a finger. Then the little boxes, did you count them? Yes, there were twenty-five. And the last one was unopened. Did you open it? Yes, it contained a minute head in ivory, wonderfully carved. I did not touch the box said Quarles. But if the toy was complete, it would naturally contain such a head. Did you notice the nineteenth box? Not particularly. Had you done so, you would have noticed it was discolored like the first and largest one, not clean and white like the others, and more, beginning from the nineteenth box, the semicircular arrangement was broken, as though it had been completed in a hurry and possibly by different hands. I did not make any comment. The largest box had become discolored because it was the outside one, always exposed. I judged, therefore, that the nineteenth box was discolored for the same reason. For some time it had been the outside box of the last few boxes. In other words, the toy in Mr. Radcliffe's possession had not been a complete one. This led me to look at box 18, the last in Mr. Radcliffe's series. It was just the size that contained the sapphire. This suggested that the sapphire was the central point of the mystery. You think the thieves were disturbed? No. Then why didn't they take the sapphire? Exactly. By the way, is the stone still at Scotland Yard? Yes. Has it been tested? No. Have it examined by the most expert man you can find. I think you will find it paste. A wonderful imitation, capable of standing some tests, but still paste. Then why did Mr. Ratcliffe an expert in gems, remember. Treasure it so carefully, I asked. He didn't, Quarles answered shortly. It is obvious that a man who possessed such stones as were found in that packet at the bank would certainly not make such a mistake, yet he was apparently playing with his treasure when he met his death. My theory had three points, you see. First, the sapphire was the sole object of the robbery. Secondly, the thieves had substituted an exact duplicate for the real stone. Thirdly, the stone must have some special fascination for Mr. Radcliffe, or he would have put it in the bank for safety as he had done with the others. An interesting theory, I admit, but 
Wait, Mr. Wigan, I have said something about my methods. I began to look for facts to support my theory. You remember the cook housekeeper? Perfectly. She spoke of her uncle's sensitiveness to noises she had on one or two occasions surprised him in a listening attitude. That gave me a clue. What was he listening for? Mr. Ratcliffe had only given way to this listening attitude recently, in fact, only since his return from his last voyage. It would seem that since his return his mental balance had become unstable. There was some constant irritation in his brain which brought fear, and in his dead eyes there was terror. My theory was complete. I had only to fit the facts into it. I suppose, Mr. Wigan, you have found out all about the people living on either side of Reckless House? Both families are above suspicion, I answered. I also tried Ossery Road, the gardens of which run down to those on the side of Blenheim Square. The house immediately behind number 12 is occupied by a doctor. I know. I called upon him recently to put some scientific point to him, said Quarles with a smile. I came to the conclusion that he could give me no information about Mr. Ratcliffe. Rather curiously, he did not like Mr. Ratcliffe. So I discovered, I answered, and I was conscious of resenting the professor's active interference in the case. There is no telling what damage an amateur may do. His dislike was a solid fact, said Quarles. I congratulate you on not being put on a false scent by it. Many detectives would have been. The gardens end on to each other. A doctor, a knowledge of subtle poisons. Oh, there were materials for an excellent case ready to hand. We are getting away from the point, Professor, I said, somewhat tartly. No, I am coming to it. I concentrated my attention on the house two doors further down the road. It would not be difficult to creep along the garden wall, even in the dark. Two Chinese gentlemen boarded there, I was told. No one had noticed them very particularly in the neighborhood. There are several boarding houses on Ossery Road, and many foreigners over here for study or upon business go to live in them. I called but the Chinese gentlemen were visiting in the country and were not expected back for another fortnight. As a fact, they were not Chinamen at all, but Tibetans, and I do not fancy they will come back. Tibetans? How do you know? You did not see them. No, it is a guess, because on his last journey, Mr. Ratcliffe wandered in Tibet. I have correspondence in northern India, and it was not very difficult to get this information by cable. You do not know Tibet, Mr. Wigan? No. Nor I? Except from travelers' tales and through my correspondence. Curious people given to fetish worship in peculiar forms. I can tell you of one strange place. Strange as Lasha. Were you to go there presently? It might be too soon yet. I cannot say for certain. But presently, I am convinced you would witness a scene of rejoicing. Religious processions in the streets. Men wearing hideous masks. And in a temple, there you would find an idol with two blue eyes. Eyes of sapphire. Two? For some time there has been only one, said Quarles. The other was stolen. You would find also in this temple talismans, ivory boxes fitting into each other, the smallest containing a little carved head, representing the head of the idol. Further... You would be told some strange tales of this idol, of the psychic influence it possesses, and how those who offended it remain always under that influence, which brings terror. Were you present at a festival in this temple, you would hear the idol speak. First you would find the great assembly in the attitude of listening, 
and then from the idol you would hear a sound, half sigh, half groan. I suppose the priest produce it mechanically. I do not know. It may be that. If this be true, the mystery is solved, I said. I think so, said Quarles. The Tibetans followed Mr. Ratcliffe to recover the lost eye. I have no doubt of that, and to be ready for any emergency had supplied themselves with a paste duplicate of the stone. Exactly how Mr. Ratcliffe died, I can only conjecture. I remember that his eyes evidently saw something, and I fancy terror killed him. The Tibetans had undoubtedly watched him constantly, and had found out that he had the stone hidden in the boxes. Probably they expected to find it so hidden, having discovered that Mr. Ratcliffe had discarded the inner boxes of the talisman at the time of the robbery. Having made certain of this, I think that on the fateful night they made the curious sound that the idol makes when speaking, expecting that he would be listening for it, as their priests declared those who offended the god always did, and as a curious fact Mr. Ratcliffe actually was, remember, and possibly they thrust between the curtains one of those hideous masks which figure in so many religious ceremonies in Tibet. Mr. Ratcliffe was in a state of mind to give any sudden terror an enormous power over him, and I think he died without any violence being offered him. So the gem was recovered, the paste sapphire, and the remaining boxes being left as a sign that the god had been avenged, a sign which I believe I have been able to read. There are the theory and some facts. You must make further inquiries yourself. The professor rose abruptly from his chair. Evidently he had no intention of answering questions and he meant the interview to come to an end. Thank you, I said. I shall take steps at once to find out if you are correct. For your own satisfaction, not mine, said Quarles. I am certain. You asked how it was I came to Blenheim Square that morning. Chance. It is called that. I do not believe in chance. When I am impelled to do a thing, I do it because I recognize a directing will and am forced to obey. We live in a world, curt with miracles, in an atmosphere of mystery which is beyond our comprehension. We find names for what we do not understand, psychic force, mind waves, telepathy, and the like, but they are only names and do not help us much. Keep an open mind, Mr. Wigan. You will be astonished what strange imaginings will enter it, imaginings which you will discover are real truths. An empty mind is an empty room. There you have the best receptacle for that great will which guides and governs all thought and action. I speak as a philosopher and as an old man to a young one. Come to me if you like when you are in difficulty, and I will help you if I'm allowed to. Do you understand? Goodbye. Subsequent inquiries made by Scotland Yard through the authorities in India established the fact that the sapphire eye of the image in Tibet had been stolen, that Mr. Radcliffe was in Tibet at the time and that not long after the tragedy in Blenheim Square, the jewel was restored to its place with much rejoicing and religious enthusiasm. I was not disposed to like Professor Quarles, nor to believe in him altogether. I found it easy to see the charlatan in him, yet the fact remained that he had solved the problem. Certainly he was interesting, and, besides, there was his granddaughter, Zena, if only for the sake of seeing her, I felt sure I should have occasion to consult Christopher Quarles again. End of chapter 1